All right, let me uh, let me pray and ask the Lord to guide our time. Father, thanks for the morning. Thank you for rest last night. Thank you for the fellowship that comes by investigating your word, um, hearing your word, seeing your word, and uh, being with your word-filled people. Uh, it is a delight to be here with one another, uh, enjoying fellowship and camaraderie and thinking about how to minister to those who are hurting and suffering. And uh, this this morning we come to a topic that um, is at times difficult to deal with, to think about, and is so uh, weighty on people's lives. Uh, I would expect that some in this room have walked these paths. Uh, Many in this room have helped others walk through this pathway. And would you... uh, would you give us skills, biblical precision, awareness um, to minister effectively uh, your truth, your comfort, your hope uh, to those who um, have experienced the, the tragedy of what we're going to speak of this morning in sexual sin? We live in a world that's just so contrary to what you have to say. And it has produced such brokenness. Our hearts grieve over the sorrow that comes from the influence of sexual sin. And, um, and we ask for your grace, your courage, your boldness um, to minister well to those who have been particularly affected by this. So begin to give us those skills this morning. Sharpen those skills. Uh, we might be effective uh, for your glory. Guide us and give me wisdom as I speak and give us attention as we listen. Uh, pray for our own hearts to be transformed uh, in this next hour. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you have walked with someone through the pathway of adultery or sexual sin and... Um, it is so incredibly weighty. Um, New York Times writer by the name of Wendy Plump wrote about her adultery and her husband's adultery in an article a couple of years ago entitled A Room Full of Yearning and Regret. She writes this, and she's a secular writer. She's not a biblical in any way. Um, but I think she really captures well what happens. Are you familiar with the article? Um, she captures well um, the emotional impact, uh, the heart impact, uh, what happens with adultery. She writes this, I knew it needed to stop, but I didn't have the will to do so on my own. I had to enlist my husband to tell him so that we could battle this together. So I admitted to the affair one evening after dinner. Almost 20 years after that confession, I can still remember how the whole world narrowed down to the two of us sitting there, that new truth congealing between us. Once the affair is out in the open, you will strive mightily to justify yourself. You will begin many sentences with the phrase, I never meant to. But one look at the hollow-eyed, defeated form of your spouse will remind you that such a claim is beside the point. You can both get over this, yes. But the innocence will have gone out of your union and it will seem as if bone has been broken and healed, but one that rain or cold weather can set to throbbing again. So now take the other side. You discover your cheating spouse as I once did and what you experience is not far removed from post-traumatic stress. It is a form of shock. As your mind struggles to accommodate this wrenching reality, you won't be able to sleep or focus. Your fight-or-flight mechanism will go haywire. You will become consumed with where your spouse is at any moment, even if you see him in the pool with your children. You will, lose, you will lose your appetite. Stress will blow out your metabolism. You will torture yourself with details known and imagined. You will fit together the mysteries of his daily patterns like a wicked puzzle. Every absence or unexplained late night or new habit or sudden urge to join a gym, for instance, will suddenly make horrible sense. You will wonder why you were so stupid. But as the writer Paul Thoreau says in one of his travel logs, it is very easy to plant a bomb in a peaceful, trusting place. And that is what the cheating spouse has done and then detonated it. 
Sooner or later, your illicit, once-loved object of affection will become tawdry and wearying. You will come to long for simple, honest pleasures like making dinner with your sons or going out to the movies without having to look over your shoulder. I look at my parents and at how much simpler their lives are at the ages of 75, mostly because they haven't marred the landscape with grand-scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50-some years behind them, and it is a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit, illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. That, if you've ever walked with somebody, she nails it. That's exactly uh, the kind of attitudes that go on. When I was in college, um, I remember coming home from church one Sunday morning and my parents saying in the car, what is the deal with our pastor? He's just sex obsessed. Every sermon, he's always talking about sex. What is the big deal? What is his hang up? He just seems so stuck on this. And now after 30 years of ministry, I understand. He understood his people. He understood where his people were and the struggles that they had. And I, I said it in my prayer, our, our, our culture has so twisted God's good gift to us, and it is so pervasive. Um, just last week, um, I dealt with um, a couple families in our church um, dealing with some children related to some sexual sin. Probably spent 20 hours with those families. And just the brokenness that comes from that. And it's just horrific. Um, These things are common in the church, way too common. If you have not seen it in your counseling ministry, you will. And that's not a threat, that's a reality. And we need to be prepared for that. The question is, what are you going to do when it pops up? And particularly this morning, I want to think about the issue of adultery. What, What does the Bible have to say about adultery. And first I want to think with you about some preliminary matters and what are our goals. And let's remember as well that there are goals not only for the counselee, but there are goals for you as well. So our friend Randy Patton has said, he told me this personally, I've heard him say it publicly many times, the hard cases are the ones you grow in. And adultery is invariably going to be a hard case. It's going to be hard because one of the one of the parties is uh, going to be sinned against and you're going to have to help them uh, reconcile and um, be content with the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's hard when you don't get to get your pound of flesh. Um, Some of them are going to want to get their pound of flesh. Some are going to retaliate in a variety of kinds of ways. Sometimes the offending party is not going to want to confess. And sometimes the offending party is not going to repent. And sometimes you're going to have to dig around and you're going to find not just one case of adultery, but you're going to find multiple cases of adultery. And it's just this pervasive sexual sin in their lives. And it becomes very, very difficult to process those things. You were talking about something, you know, where the couple isn't even ready to come together. You've got to counsel a couple separately, and that's not uncommon in this kind of scenario. Um, So this is about your growth spiritually as well. You're learning to be dependent on the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Um, And these are going to be challenging for you as well. Robert Jones says something similar. Is this a ministry nightmare or is it an opportunity? And God has, God has chosen you, if you're walking this case, God has chosen you to minister to this couple in the deepest hour of their need. And that there's a sense in which, okay, this is hard, um, but it's also a tremendous opportunity. I say all the time, who knows what God will do? And you look at the situation and you think, I don't see a way out. Um, and it is in that situation that God often works to demonstrate the greatness of his glory and the greatness of the power of confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. This is what God's called us to do, right? This is Ephesians 4. This is, this is equipping the saints. This is ministering, binding up uh, broken, broken uh, bones and, and wounds and healing. Um, so this is going to be a great opportunity for you to grow, and this is going to be a great opportunity for the couple as well. Um, third goal, you want to help each person glorify God regardless of how the spouse responds. Your goal in adultery is not saving the marriage. That's secondary or tertiary. It is not primary. Your primary goal is to help husband walk with Christ and wife walk with Christ regardless. 
And there's a lot behind the word regardless, isn't there? Right? So all kinds of responses that the individual members of that marriage will, um, will be prone to. And there's all kinds of circumstances. Our goal is in every circumstance to help them walk with Christ. Um, if both parties are committed to glorifying God, the complete reconciliation, restoration, growth, and unity of the marriage is the main expression of this goal. So I always tell couples, look, my goal is not to help you save the marriage. My goal is to help you walk with Christ. If the husband walks with Christ, the wife walks with Christ. I talked about this yesterday, didn't I? Or was that next door? I can't remember who I said what to. So if the husband walks with Christ, he's moving towards Christ. And if the wife is moving towards Christ, then they are also moving together, right? And that's where you see the healing of the, of the marriage. But the goal isn't first to bring them together. That's not the first. Their first relationship in life is not husband to wife. The first relationship is man to God, wife to God, or woman to God. That's why my wife and I both said many times, um, we're looking forward to seeing each other in heaven whenever it is. You know, the Lord's going to separate us on earth for a brief period, likely. And one of us is going to go to heaven first, and then the other one's going to arrive. And we both told each other, when I get to heaven, I want to see you, but not first. Who do I want to see first? I want to see my Savior. And so, I, I mean, I want to see my wife. I, I, hope, I hope we get to spend lots of time together in heaven. Um, because as good as our relationship is on earth, it's going to be that much better in heaven, right? So no sin. But I want to see Jesus. And that's the goal on earth as well, right? Uh, therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. Our goal, that's 2 Corinthians 5.9, our goal, our primary goal is vertical, not horizontal. And so you want to keep that straight, even for the couple in adultery. And, and it, they're going to be challenged about that. They, they may not initially understand that. Okay, so let's think about some preliminary matters. What are some of the potential circumstances of adultery? Now, notice the word there. It's circumstances. It's not causes. Lots of people are in all of these circumstances, and they never commit adultery. So this is not, this is not a direct connection. You do this, and you're going to commit adultery. There's not a, you don't have to commit adultery. But these are the kinds of scenarios in which we sometimes will see people committing adultery when they're coming out of these out of these situ, uh, situations. So they're, they're the contexts, if you will, uh, of adultery. There is unsatisfactory spousal support or encouragement. They're going to say, I, you're going to hear words like, I'm lonely, I'm alone, I'm isolated. Uh, there's no interaction. Uh, there's no fellowship. There's no communion. There's no harmony, those kinds of things. Um, he was always gone. She was always gone. And I just needed someone to talk to. Uh, they have unresolved conflict with their mate. Um, if you've heard me speak before, you've probably heard me say, we don't sing sin in isolation. So sin always comes in multiples. It's never singular. It's like Doritos, right? You never eat just one. You never just sin one time. You accommodate sin in one area. It's going to pop up in another area as well. And, um, and if you are... Um, uh, yeah, so in, in this instance, you know, you have unresolved conflict. And, and this is typical for couples, right? So what do you do to resolve conflict? Well, you know, it's really, it's really bad. It's horrific at night. You know, we're just, you know, it's hammer and tongs. We're yelling, we're screaming, we're throwing things at each other. And then we get up in the morning and it's not quite as bad. And then by the time we get home from work, it's not quite as bad. And like the next morning, like two days later, we kind of talk to each other and we just kind of fall back into a pattern. What do you do to reconcile? Well... And you just, it just kind of dissipates over time. So what they've got is they've got this growing pile of stuff that they're shoving under the carpet, right? It's not been resolved biblically. It's not been confessed. It's not been forgiven. You haven't had the redemption of Christ applied to it. And it's just festering. And when you do that, unresolved conflict, it's going to blow up. And, in, and sometimes it blows up into adultery. So you're going to watch for those kinds of things. You're going to have unmet, unsatisfactory sexual relations. Um, that might be one of the causes or stimulants, better word, or it could be the effect of the adultery. So it might be something that pushes them into adultery in their minds. It pushes me you know, because I'm not getting this. 
then I'm seeking it somewhere else. Or it could be the effect. It could be the, the fallout from the adultery. So they commit the adultery and then they become unsatisfied at home. And that drives them in even more uh, towards the other person. Um, they come from a family where adulterous and sexual sins were not unusual. In other words, they've been trained well uh, by their parental homes. They have a disregard for authority and accountability. Um, I'm, I am my own master. I get to set my own agenda. I am accountable to no one except for myself. I get to determine. And this starts when they are really young, right? That's one of the, one of the reasons you want to provide discipline for children. You've got to teach them. There's structure. There's order. There's accountability. There are parameters. Um, they have a sense of entitlement. I deserve more than I'm getting. And the more someone gets, the more they're going to have a sense of entitlement. So more income, more disposable income. They have more ability to hide things. Maybe they're traveling more. Maybe they're traveling more on their own. Um, And they get this sense of, I deserve this. I have a right to it. Breakdown of extended family has removed more and more barriers of accountability and support. Um, and, and that's even exacerbated more if people are disconnected from the church, if they're isolated church, it's a large church, excuse me, and um, you know they have no relationships in the church body, they're just a person, they show up on Sunday morning, there's a thousand other people there, and they don't have any connection, they're so, even in the church body, there's, there's, um, there's no accountability. Promiscuity is more accepted by our society, and removing of barriers of accountability and support, it's, uh, excuse me, that's um, previous point, more accepted by our society, um, and, and it's just the norm. It, it's really ironic, isn't it? I, I don't know if you've noticed this. You know, you'll see um, somebody in politics, and, and an affair comes out. And it's like, oh, he needs to resign immediately, right? And it's all this casting of stones Yet everything in our culture goes to build that up and say that's the norm and what people ought to be doing. So there's this dichotomy between what's said publicly and what's done privately. So privately, as long as nobody knows, it's accepted. As soon as it becomes knows, known, then, then people are casting stones. And it's this, it's this hypocritical part of our culture uh, that, that breeds uh, that, kind of, that kind of thing. Adultery is more common among people who had early adolescent sexual activity. Um, it is easier to not start an activity than to stop it, right? So if the TV's not on, it's not a big deal. Turn the TV on, it's harder to turn it off. That's a simple thing. Um, If you don't open the ice cream bucket, bucket, it's not a big deal. You open the ice cream bucket, it's like, well, just another, you know, it's only a couple more ounces, and, you know, since I've got the ice cream, I might as well have the hot fudge if I have the hot fudge. You know, we have that new sea salt caramel stuff. You all tried that, by the way. That's awesome. <laughs> right? But if I walk back by the freezer and don't open the door and don't pull any of the ice cream, it's, it's not a big deal. And that's true sexually. Once the door's open, it's hard. It is hard to stop. And that is true of adultery as well. Um, they're changing attitudes towards sexual sins among professing Christians. I just saw something in the last six months or so, and I didn't write it down. I don't remember it, but it's astonishing how the norms, what is accepted among evangelical believers about sexual activity outside of marriage, and and those that the perspective on that is changing dramatically. It's far more accepted. Pornography, much more accepted than it would have been even 10 years ago, never mind a generation ago. Um, People are dissatisfied, they're bored with other parts of life and are looking for excitement and pleasures. And they're moving from one thing to another until they can find something that will satisfy them. And of course, it's not going to satisfy, right? That's that's the problem with a drunkard as well, all right? Why does he get drunk? Because the first glass of alcohol doesn't satisfy him. So he goes to the second one, the third one, the fourth one, the fifth one, thinking it's going to satisfy, and it never does. That's why one pornographic image is never enough. It doesn't satisfy. He's got to go to the second one, and the third one, and the thousandth one, and the ten thousandth one, because none of them satisfy. That's the nature of sin. It won't satisfy. And so they're 
they're getting bored and they just keep looking around for more and more things to give them satisfaction, knowing, um, I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said, the man that knocks on the door of the brothel knocks for God. So he's gone to the brothel thinking that's going to satisfy me when he's really looking for God to satisfy him. And that's where he needs to go. They enjoy testing the limits. Some adulterers are highly competitive. They like challenges and conquests. It's just a a game to play to to try and gain the next conquest, the next victory. Uh, Major transition in life or life cycle. Um, unmet desires and expectations. They're going to call them needs. That's not what they are. They're not needs. No one ever died of lack of sex. Right? You will die of lack of food. You'll die from lack of sleep. You'll die from lack of water. No one ever died from lack of sex. It's not a need. Um, but they will call it that. And they will expect to get it. And when they don't get it from the spouse in the way that they want, they'll seek for it somewhere else in some other way. If they're young believers, they may come with a lengthy history of sexual sin, may not have been taught biblically how those desires can change. Um, Attempting to punish a spouse because he or she isn't, uh, because of what he or she isn't doing as an effort to manipulate or change the spouse or the circumstance. Some commit adultery because the spouse did. It's a retribution kind of thing. I'll show you. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. Um... And they're engaged in other significant patterns of sin. Again, we don't sin in isolation. You cannot selectively ignore your conscience. You can't say, well, I'm just going to, I know my conscience is telling me this over here, and I'm going to ignore that, but I'm going to submit to my conscience over here. You kill it here, you kill it everywhere. And you will see that in relation to sexual sin. So those are some of the context. So you won't see that, see all of these in every person, but these are the kinds of things you're going to want to um, be aware of. And they're going to, those kinds of things are going to help you understand what, what is compelling that person, what is tempting that person to commit adultery. So if that's the context, what are the causes? What is the primary cause of adultery? And this is maybe going to be radical for you, but consider this. Adultery is a work of the flesh. The cause of adultery is a lack of walking under the power of the Spirit. The person who commits adultery is not a spiritual person. Galatians 5, I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. What's the flip side of that? If you are carrying out the desire of the flesh, you are not walking by the Spirit. But Terry, I know a man who did this for God and this for God and this for God and this for God. And he also had an adulterous relationship, but he was so effective for God. No, friend, he wasn't. All Whatever he did, it was all done out of the flesh and it was all wood, hay and stubble before God. Because he's not walking under the power of the Spirit. This text tells us that. And it says, verse 17, the flesh is sets its desire against the Spirit so that the the nature of the flesh is to say, get rid of the power of the Spirit and the Spirit's primary tool, the Word of God. And so it's going to constantly be pushing against the Spirit and submission to the Spirit and submission to the Spirit's Word. These are in opposition to one another, flesh and Spirit, so that you may not do the things you please. So they're always against each other, flesh and Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. All four of those are involved in in adultery. Sorcery, enmities, strife, that's invariably part of adultery as well. Jealousy, yes. Outbursts of anger, often. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If the person is committing adultery, they're like half that list. They're not walking by the Spirit. So whoever it is that you have in front of you that's committed adultery, you can say unequivocally, he is not, she is not a spiritual person. Doesn't matter what they're teaching, doesn't matter 
how faithful they are on Sunday morning. It doesn't matter what ministries they're involved in. They are fleshly people not walking according to the Spirit of God. R.C. Sproul wrote, In every single marriage that ends in disaster, some stupid decisions were made with respect to God's regulations. Don't you, don't you like how Sproul was so subtle? Yeah, really helpful at times to hear it that way. If God's regulations were followed scrupulously, not only would there be no divorces, there would be no unhappy marriages. To violate the regulations of God is not only an exercise in disobedience, but an exercise in foolishness as well. If you want a happy marriage, the most intelligent thing you can do is to submit to God's regulations. They're designed to promote and to protect your full happiness. God carefully planned them. But before the regulations of God can work for our happiness, we have to know what they are. And again, study is required that we may not... So, so that we may not only know the wisdom of God, but master it, that is, live it. Uh, so again, whatever is said about the adulterer and his spiritual condition, it cannot be said that he is spiritual or walking under the power of the Spirit of God. And you need to have that clearly implanted in your head when he walks in the room. Second thing, adultery, um, oh, I already got done that. Adultery is not accidental. He didn't fall into it. He walked boldly into it. He walked rebelliously into it. It was purposeful and intentional. Um, how can I say that? Because adultery reveals what? The heart. Now, it may appear that it happened suddenly. I had no idea. But he's been cultivating something inwardly for a long time. Meditating on it, thinking about it, desiring it, planning it. Um, so it's been often said the man who steps into adultery is taking a small step. It's just the next one. It's just the last one in a really long process that he's been cultivating internally for a really long time. Adultery is not accidental. Um, Said another way, adultery is a worship problem. We talk about that a lot, right? All sin is a is worship problem. Um, the adulterer is an idolater. He has wanted something internally that God has said, that's going to kill you if you do it. Let me show you the pathway to life. And he's rejected God's counsel in that regard. So Wayne Mack has written, if nasty sinful stuff comes out of us, the problem is not with our actions, but rather with our hearts. If adultery comes out of the heart, it's because the heart is not clean. Adultery comes out because adultery is inside. I had a really stark reminder of that a number of years ago. Um, when I was in seminary, we lived in a, um, four apartments close together using a common entryway. And... Um, in three of those apartments, you know, there were three of us, three of us couples became really good friends. My two best friends in seminary lived there. And the couple that lived upstairs and across the hall um, spent a lot of time with, kept up with. He moved to North Carolina after, after seminary, was in a church, and hadn't heard anything from him on one occasion for about six months or so. This was, I don't know, 15 years into our ministry. And so I just emailed him. Hey, what's going on? What's happening? Haven't heard from you in a while. And he wrote back this. I would appreciate your prayers as my wife and I recently separated. I left the church in January. I wish I could say it looked hopeful, but I gave up and fell. And that's hard to recover from. And um, he's a very fine photographer, but he's now a photographer in North Carolina. A gifted man gifted expositor, gifted communicator, and he washed it all out for a relationship of a short duration. And why? Notice what he said, I gave up. Right. So internally, he's wrestling, he's thinking, he's cultivating, his conscience is telling him, don't do that. And he gave up on the fight. And then he took a small step and engaged in adultery. And he's washed out his life. I saw on Facebook, I follow him on Facebook, 
One of his kids he's not spoken to in 10 years. That's part of the fallout. And it's just so tragic. Um, Florence Lidauer has rightly written, no good Christian man gets up in the morning and says, my, this is a lovely day. I guess I'll go out and commit adultery. Yet many do it anyway. And the question is this, why is it true that many do it anyway? Because they have not continuously by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and by the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ purified their hearts and filled them with godly thoughts and godly desires and because the desires and cravings of their their hearts have become adulterous. They've just not been paying attention to the heart. They've not been guarding the heart, not recognizing that from it flows the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23. just along with us as one final preliminary matter, it will be helpful for you and for your church to have a clearly defined, communicated div- div- position on divorce and remarriage and then how this position is going to be applied in counseling situations. So what are the parameters of divorce? If Well, how are you thinking about divorce? How do you understand what the biblical text has to say about divorce? And then how is that going to be worked out in marriage situations? You need to know that now before it pops up. Because when the couple comes in the, into the room, is not the time to, 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 to try and decide, well, I wonder if divorce is an option. They're thinking about divorce. Is that biblical? Uh, no. Now emotions are involved. You're not going to think clearly. So you need to decide now, ahead of time, before it comes to you, what your position is going to be. We are going to advocate for reconciliation. We're always going to be working towards reconciliation. Why? Because... Uh, because of the oneness of the marriage relationship. So while while there is sin that has intruded in a dramatic in a dramatic way, the couple is still one. And that's not changed. And we want to hold that high and say, look what God can do to make a couple one and keep them one. And just because some sin has intruded doesn't mean we need to dissolve it and walk away. Let's see what God will do to preserve that marital relationship. Of course, that's rooted back in Genesis 2. You're familiar with that. We pursue reconciliation because it is a picture of Christ and the church. This is, this is so essential. When Paul talks about uh, marriage in Ephesians 5, and I know you all know that passage well, talks about the relationship of wives to husbands, talks about the relationship of husbands to wives, And then he says at the end of the chapter, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. What mystery? Well, mystery is something that's been hidden previously and now it's been revealed, right? So what mystery is he talking about? Well, he can't be talking about the union of husband and wife because that was revealed back in Genesis 2. So we've known about that. We've known about the wonder that God can take two people and make them one. One plus one is one. That's God's math as it relates to marriage. So we've known that. So that's not the mystery he's talking about. So what's the mystery he's talking about? But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So he's saying there's something going on in the marriage relationship that is beyond the marriage relationship, and that is we're picturing Christ in the church. So why do we pursue reconciliation for a couple that has had sin intruded in such a dramatic way? Because it pictures what Christ does for the church. Christ doesn't divorce his church. Christ doesn't divorce individuals. And when a, when a marriage is restored, it pictures what God does. This is more than just about the husband and the wife. This is about Christ and the church. And we want to help them with that because of that reality. We want to reconcile because it's a means of sanctification for both parties. It is easy to walk away. It is hard to stay and be reconciled. But where are you going to be most sanctified? Walk... uh, I've always, and this, this is true of you too, I'm sure. I've always grown most when I've had to work the hardest. Didn't like it necessarily. It was hard. You know, I'm not the first in line to say, hard work, please. But that's what's beneficial. That's what's helpful. I mean, I don't like getting up early in the morning and going for a run. I don't like going to the YMCA after a long day at work. But that's beneficial. It's hard, but it helps. 
right? And it's the same with sanctification. It's hard, but it's for our benefit. What kind of benefits? It's going to reveal how they're living for themselves and not for each other in Christ. And that's true of both parties, isn't it? Because one has sinned more greatly, but there's still another sinner in that relationship as well, right? Even the one who has been sinned against, though they may not have sinned in that particular instance, they're still sinners and they still need sanctification as well. And this is going to expose all kinds of sin about themselves. The last case I did of of adultery last year, um, the couple came to me. It turned out that the wife had four relationships that were inappropriate. She had committed physical adultery with two and had emotional adultery with two others. And uh, I walked them through the process of confession forgiveness. She came with a three-page single-spaced letter of confession. He came with a four-page letter of confession. And he didn't commit adultery. And the essence of his um, confession was, yeah, you sinned, but I pushed you to it. I provoked you by all of my inattention. Then he spent four pages telling all the ways that he was inattentive to her. Um, It it was a beautiful thing to watch, right? So his sin is being exposed as well. And that's helpful. Um, It's going to reveal how they've inadequately fulfilled their roles. That's the couple that I was just talking about. That was one of their scenarios. It's going to teach them how to love without demanding love in return. Um, you can love your neighbor as yourself. John Piper said it this way. Um, I do not need to be loved, but I do need to love. So the biblical commandment, biblical mandate is often love one another, right? How many times is that said in the New Testament? Love one another, love one another, love one another. It never says be loved by others. Pursue love from others. Now, I've got a responsibility to love my brother Mike, but I don't have to be loved by him. And whether I'm loved by him or not, I love him. And that's true of every relationship, even the marital relationship. My responsibility to my wife is to love her regardless. Um, And so uh, that's going to be a a primary focus as we think about reconciliation. Yikes. Uh, It's going to teach them how to make Christ and not their mate, their identity. Uh, It's going to expose other areas of sin that need transformation. Um, We're also going to reconcile because it will teach both parties the cost, extent, and grace of forgiveness. Now a couple knows when they say, I love you, just how far that love will go. Because they've seen the cost. Um, Every couple I've counseled, counseled in adultery, without exception, have all said, I would never want anyone to go through what we've gone through. But I'm so grateful for what God has worked through this. I would have never learned. And then they list off if I hadn't gone through this. So they're careful to say, don't want it. You know, don't don't say, well, let me learn those lessons. So let's go commit adultery. (laughs) That's a terrible idea. Um, But it's just what God does in redeeming our sin. Right. And and we want them to learn that. Uh, It's going to teach them patience and endurance, long-suffering. It's going to teach them to identify with Christ's suffering. Um, I also want to teach them reconciliation for the benefit of children. That's a good reason. I want to model for my kids everything about the marital relationship and that everything can be fixed. And um, and that applies in this situation as well. I want to make things right for my children. The, the way to make things better for my children is not say we can't get along and so let's let's divorce. It's better for the kids. No, it's better that you learn how to reconcile, how to control your anger, how to control your desires, have them conform to Christ and have your children learn that and stay in the marriage. And you've just sought the easy way out. Let's think about data gathering. Um, two or three years ago, I started supervising counselors and it became really obvious that as it was with me early in my ministry, gathering data is going to be really hard because the temptation is to not ask enough questions because this is really invasive. You've got to ask some really private, personal stuff. And it's like, oh, I can't ask that. You've got to ask it. 
Not that you not that you want to be perverse in any way, but if you don't know, you can't help them. And so uh, Randy Patton, in fact, I was telling him this this morning, I always have Randy Patton in my ear when I'm counseling this. And he told me once when I was really hesitant to ask the question, the next question, he says, always ask the next natural question. So once you've asked, once the door's open, just plow through and ask everything. So somebody says, I'm looking at porn. Oh, sorry to hear that. Okay, let's go on. Let's move on. So how much did you read your Bible last week? No, 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 no. How often are you looking at porn? Well, like once a day. How long? Well, like uh, 20 minutes. Are you looking at, at pictures or videos? Are you looking at homosexual porn or um, heterosexual porn? Are you looking at child porn? Are you masturbating when you're looking at porn? Are you masturbating without looking at porn? Yes. Oh, so you're looking at porn in your head that you've planted there previously and masturbating that way. I'm asking all that stuff and more. Is that invasive? Yeah. Do I need to know that? Yeah. Not because I want to be perverse. I never ask for websites. I don't want to know that kind of stuff. But I need to know because I need to know how deep the sin is so that I can help it. Um, Now, you will also learn when you're asking these kinds of things, you'll also learn to pray, Lord, I need to know this right now, but keep me from meditating on it so I remember it. It's got to stay there. It's got to stay in your short term memory, not your long term memory. And and the Lord will be gracious. In fact, Keith and I were talking, our associate pastor and I were talking the other day about a situation. He said, remember, I was briefing the elders a couple of years ago about this issue about abuse with this particular family or an accusation of abuse. And I said, I'm sorry, Keith, I don't remember. It was two years ago. And in God's grace, it just had been removed from my memory bank. And that, that's a gift. So what kinds of questions are we going to ask? How is adultery discovered? Why is that important? Yeah, exactly. Did they confess it? Or were they outed? And that's going to go a long ways to determining whether or not they're going to be truly repentant. How public is it? If, if, if they were exposed... Who else knows? How many other know? Uh, how many others in your church know? Uh, and how are you going to have to help people in your church address that kind of situation? What kind of adultery uh, occurred? Was it one time while they were intoxicated? Was it an ongoing relationship that was intermittent over a series of weeks or months? Was it a, uh, was it a relationship that was akin to marriage? Were there multiple partners? Were there multiple partners at the same time? Were there multiple partners that were separated from one another, but over a succession of months and years, decades even? And and the way we counsel is going to be different. I mean, it's all adultery, but those are vastly different kinds of scenarios. And it's going to be exposing different kinds of heart things. And so you're going to want to know those kinds of situations, those kinds of uh, questions and answers. How frequent was the adultery? How many people were involved? Is or are the other party or parties married? How are they responding uh, to that situation? How is the offended partner responding? So when she's sitting in front of you and she's dumping all the stuff, are you watching him? How is he responding? How is he interacting? How is he thinking about it? Um, And how is the offending partner responding? Now, invariably, in that scenario, you're going to see somebody crying, probably both of them. What does that mean? When they're crying, they're exposing the adultery and they're weeping. What does it mean? Pain, repentance, possibly. I like the word possibly. Shame. You don't know. You've got to ask. So when I see tears, I always say, now you're crying now. What's going through your mind? What are you thinking? What's driving the tears? Because you don't know. It could be shame. could be guilt. could be regret. (laughs) I'm getting busted for something that I really want and I'm not ready to give it up. And you don't know until you ask the question. Don't assume tears is repentance. It might be. And I've seen that. Um, 
that couple I was just telling you about, I went over to their house the day that it was exposed, the day that the husband found out. And by the time I got there, the wife was back at the house. She had been gone for the day, and she was sitting on the couch. He was sitting at the other end of the couch, and her feet were pulled up on the couch, and she was almost in a ball, just sobbing. And so we talked about what does that mean, and in God's grace, it meant repentance and grief and sorrow over what she had done. Um, Those are good things. But you're going to need to ask those kinds of things. Uh, You're going to need to watch for, um, in the offending partner, the sinner, defensiveness, resistance, anger, resentment. You're going to watch for contrition. What do they want to do? What's their plan? I always ask that. What's your plan? I ask both of them. What do you want for this relationship? Because I want to know right up front, where's this thing going? How do I need to be thinking about trying to bring the two of them together? Because that's my goal, but I'm not assuming that's necessarily their goal. Um, what other steps have both of them taken? So I know it's immediate, but have you taken any steps? Are you hiding money? Um, are you making plans? Do you have a Do you have a flight? Do you have a hotel room? Do you have contact with other person? So I'm 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 asking all those kinds of questions. Are the husband and wife believers? Uh, what's their testimony? Um, do they, do they see the discontinuity between what they're doing and the gospel? Some will, some won't. And then we're going to talk about um, the kinds of things that they're worshiping and what they're wanting and what they're desiring. Um, is the other party a believer? So the one that has been in union with your adulterer, is that person a believer um, or purporting to be a believer? Are they a member of your church? That's always fun. I had that. Uh, years ago, came out one of our deacons was committing adultery with a woman in the church. And I came home and told my wife, so-and-so is committing adultery. And she said, is it? And she named the woman. Yeah, as you know. I just watched them. I saw them one Sunday morning and I thought, that's weird. She had it pegged. Um, so how are you going to handle that? How are you going to handle both those spouses and what are you going to do? Um, if they're members of another church, how are you going to relate to that church? How are you going to help them? How are you going to interact with that pastor? Um, what's their relationship with that pastor, that church? What are they telling that church? You're going to have to do... Um, both extensive, that's broad, and intensive, that's deep data gathering. And you're going to want to do that ultimately with both of them individually, and especially the offending partner. I want time alone with the sinner. The last time, you know, the initial thing came out, the two of them were together, and then I met with her and my wife alone when her husband isn't there, because now I'm going to get a bigger part of the picture, right? And more stuff started coming out at that point because she's just more free to talk. She understands every word she says with him in the room is a dagger. It's not intentional maybe in that moment. She understands the effect of the hurt. And so I'm going to want uh, an opportunity to talk with her. Um, Questions about data gathering. Okay. Okay. Ask lots of questions. Ask the next natural question. Keep pursuing. And I ask repeatedly. So I meet with them one session. I don't assume, I never assume, never assume, never assume that I'm getting all the information the first time. You won't. Sexual sin wants to stay hidden. Even when it's exposed, it wants to stay hidden. And so you're just going to have to keep digging, keep probing. And so it's invariable that I'll ask second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time. Just keep coming back to the same questions. Hey, what's this going on? Is there anything else? What else about this person? Did you do this with this person? Did you do this with that person? And I just keep pursuing and pushing because I'm just expecting I'm going to get more data that I don't have everything. Um, and I don't know that I can necessarily chapter and verse that, but I've just seen it every single time I've dealt with sexual sin. I've never gotten the full story the first time. Never. Um, and that's as recent as last week. So um, just assume that you're going to need more information. 
how in the world are you going to give hope? Because that's one of the first things you want to do. How are you going to give them hope? Um, you're going to take them to a few texts, and these are familiar to you. You know Romans 8, 28, and 29. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily push hard on the, uh, the all things part of it, but I would push hard on the back part of that verse, that God is using this to bring conformity for you to Christ. That's the goal. And He can do that in the harshness of this situation. This isn't beyond Him. Um, Psalms 42 and 43, those three times he says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And somebody in this situation going to feel despairing? (laughs) Yeah. And you help them to go to God, uh, who is the source of their hope. Psalm 46, where are they seeking refuge? So in in your distress, where are you running quickly for refuge? Where are you going to hide? Um, how will you endure? 1 Corinthians 10.13 Point them to Psalm 32.38.51 All those related to David and his sin with Bathsheba. Right? And, and that is the man who says, you know, uh, the fever heat of summer was on me and, and just the brokenness and despair that he felt because of the adultery. And that's the one of whom it says in Acts, who's a man after God's own heart. Now, it's not, you know, it wasn't like 10 minutes later. There was a process, and it was painful. But that's what God does. God buys back our sin and uses it to accomplish good things in our lives. And we want, we want to help them see that. We want to remind them that God is present with the offended spouse, and He will provide the needed grace, comfort, care, and strength that they need. And He's present with the offending person, and offers forgiveness and transformation for those who repent. And that the individual that chooses to trust, seek, depend on, and honor Christ, God promises to use that bad situation to make him more like Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what we say in every other situation, and that hasn't changed in adultery. The circumstance is difficult, but that hasn't changed what we're going to counsel. And if both the husband and wife seek to honor, obey Christ, God will not only restore their marriage, but he'll make it stronger. Um, I've just seen that. Over and over. Help them find refuge in God. Um, they are going to be tempted to seek refuge in all kinds of other things. You need to help them find their refuge in Christ and not the spouse and not in reconciliation. When they come and they're seeking counsel, you've gathered data. You're going to want to get them to make some initial commitments. Um, part of that commitment is we want to know the spiritual condition. We're going to dig really hard. We're going to push really hard, especially for the offending person essentially prove to me that you're a believer doing what you're doing because this is wholly inconsistent. Now, it, it doesn't mean that, that if you're a believer, you can't commit adultery. Some will, but you can't stay in that state. And so show me that you really are trusting in Christ for your salvation and you really do desire to delight in Him. So we're going we're gonna, to uh, push hard on the spiritual condition of both spouses. Um, If they claim to be believers, we're going to seek a commitment from them to honor and please God in their desires, thoughts, words, and actions, right? So then we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, whether I'm home in heaven or absent from heaven here on earth, to be pleasing to the Lord. That's my desire, 2 Corinthians 5.9. And we're going to help them do that. Um, If they aren't changing, if they're not doing homework, if there's not growth, if there's not progression, that means you don't have a counselee. Now, they may be coming to the meetings, they may be interacting, but you don't have a counselee. And so you're going to want to seek to gain this commitment from them. And then if you see them pulling back and not engaging in the process, then you can say, look, you you came to me and you asked me for your help. You asked me to help you. And um, you just seem to be sliding back on the commitment. Where are you? What are you wanting to do? Where's your heart? Have you reaffiliated with that person? Have you made that connection to that person again? Um, And then if ultimately they resist that, then Matthew 18 and restorative discipline is enacted. And you're familiar with that. What kinds of things are you going to watch out for? All kinds of dangers you want to be attentive to. For instance, competing counsel. So here's my rule. With the woman, always find out whether she's offended or offending. Who's her girlfriend? She's got one. And I don't mean in a sexual way. 
But she's got somebody who's doing this. She has her ear and she's talking to her. And very often, what she's hearing from her girlfriend is undermining what I'm trying to do. <laughs> so you're nodding. You've seen it, right? I want to know who that person is. And then, and then I'm going to give her a script. And I'm going to say, here's what you need to tell that woman. Do you want me to honor Christ in this situation? Yes. My counselor is helping me to honor Christ. And I know you want that for me. Your counsel is not helping me. So either you change your counsel or I'm going to have to find another person to listen to who will support me in my desire to honor Christ. Or something to that effect. Um, You can soften that, say it a little more graciously, a little more gently. That's the essence though. If that doesn't work, we have done this. We've pulled in four friends that were talking in her ear. And we've said, here's what our counsel is for this person. This is what we want for that person. You're a member of this church. You want that for that for this person too, right? And what are they going to say? Yes, that's all they can say. Yes, that's what I want. Here's what we want you to do. And we'll give them a script for how we want them to relate to this person. And if they don't follow the script, then we're going to admonish the counselee to separate away from that person, at least for the duration of while they're in counseling. It's going to be good for their soul. So competing counsel. Uh, Where's that coming from? You're going to watch for anger, bitterness, revenge. Um, Romans 12, 14 and following tells us that that's an issue. We're going to be thinking about gossip. Um, Who knows about the situation? What are they saying? What do we say to them? How do we help them interact with those things? Here's a rule. Sometimes things aren't known to the family. What do you tell the family? What do you tell mom and dad? What do you tell the kids? The kids are teenagers. The teenagers know something's going on. What do you tell them? Here's the rule. We want to keep things as private as possible for as long as possible. If it's not a public sin, it's a private sin. Keep it that way as much as is possible. Which means mom and dad may never know, and that's okay. The kids may never know, and that's okay. It's not deceitfulness. It's right to know. Um... And we want to help them be in an environment where they can be as successful as possible in dealing with the situation that is between them. And if mom and dad know now we've got competing counsel and we've got to sort out how they can help mom and dad think about this. And it's just distracting them from their purpose and what they need to be doing to be reconciled to one another and reconciled to God. And so we want to we want to keep it as private as possible, as long as possible. Watch for cynicism, rash decisions. Um, watch for watch for counselees who are prone to following the counsel of the last person to talk to them. Want to watch for despair. Watch for pride. Uh, Mr. Log and Mr. Speck. Okay, so you've got a chart, right? Do you have a chart in front of you? Okay, so lots we can do to fill it out. I have like one minute. The The main thing I want you to see... We want them to break the adulterous relationship for the offender immediately. Notice those words. So that it is immediate, unconditional, verifiable. There's no, well, I'll I'll, I'll contact her next week. No, today. I'll do it this evening when I get home. No, there's a phone over there. Let's do it now. Unconditional. No, you know, I was talking to my wife and this really, you know, this really isn't a good thing and it's, it's kind of hard and I think, I, I kind of think maybe we ought to, no. The sentence is, this is disobedient, rebellious to God. I have shamed the name of Christ. I have violated my covenant to my wife. This is over immediately. Period. End of sentence. End of phone call. And it's verifiable. We see the letter that's written. We see the email that is sent. We listen in on the phone call as it is made. We verify that it's made. And then we help them reinforce it. We change phone numbers. We close all social media accounts. Um, If we have to, we will help them relocate. 
will help them find a new job because the woman is at the job and he's got to get out of there. Um, it, that, is that radical? Yeah. It's plucking out your eyes so you can save your soul. It's worth it. It's radical amputation. So that's what we're doing with him. We're helping him radically amputate and then we're addressing all of the issues of her heart, helping her to see that she needs to take refuge in Christ more than anything else. And then identify the idols that are in her own heart and the own sin that the sins that are in her own heart as well. Um, If we can get them to the place of reconciliation, so what I do is typically this, I'll meet with the two of them together when it first comes out, typically is the way that happens. Then I'll meet alone with him. Then I'll meet alone with her, gather data from both of them individually. Then I'll meet with each of them, um, talking with the offender about what confession looks like. I walk them through 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. And then we play that out and I have them start working on a confession statement if that's where they want to go. And then at the same time, I'm talking with the offended person about forgiveness and what's going to be the response when your sinning mate comes to you to confess and what are you going to say to them and what does that mean? And then I flip it. The next session, I talk the opposite, right? I talk to the offender about forgiveness because the offended person, I'm going to speak about confession to them. They also are going to have things to confess. They've done things wrong in the marriage relationship too. They've got a pile in the corner and all those things are going to need to get addressed as well. And then I have them both write confession statements and then submit them to me. And then I read through them. I pull them together. I bring them in individually. We're going back over those confession statements. What's been left out? This is not the time when you want to leave anything hidden. All got to be on the table. And so we talk about that. Then I bring them together and they each read their confession statements together. And then they each grant forgiveness towards one another. And there's lots of sweet tears often. It's, it's really fun to watch. Um, and then we say, praise God, you're reconciled. Go warm and be filled. Uh, no. No. <laughs> In a lot of ways, and that's intense. And a lot of times, uh, I think the last time I did it, all that happened in about 10, 10 days. And I mean, it's, I don't know, 20, 30 hours in that 10 days. So it's, it's intensive, it's long, it's exhausting for everybody. I told, I told them, okay, so we're not going to meet. I mean, we've been meeting every other day. We're not going to meet for another week. Is that okay? <gasps> Thank you, we're exhausted. <laughs> It's good, but we're exhausted. Then you're going to build a relationship through regular biblical counseling. They've done a whole lot of things that have moved in the wrong direction. You're going to want to give them a mentor couple. You're going to help them as appropriate craft joint press releases. Who knows what? Um, And you're going to help them deal with those kinds of issues. You're going to help them deal with the various root and fruit issues in their lives. Right. And so there are all kinds of things you can be thinking about, you know, issues related to husband to wife. Um, things that are related to couple, right? Roles, sexuality, sanctification, confession, friendship, pride, anger, um, self-righteousness, communication, um, parenting, companionship, all those kinds of things are on the table. It won't relate to everybody, but um, you know all those things. Potential areas that need um, attention. I think you have all those listed. Is that right? Okay, so we just covered all. Except number eight, which is... Heart issues. Okay, so all kinds of things that come from the heart. Um, Sinful desires, financial issues. Um, Adultery costs a lot financially. Guys will spend money um, on the wife, on the the pseudo wife. Um, Pregnancy, that's always an issue. Um, Proceed with marriage counseling. Want to help them live daily in the light of the transaction that has been given in confession and repentance. Um, Counseling protocol here simply, this is a summary. So this is just kind of the cliff notes version of everything we've talked about so far. You get them helping, helping them work together. Every situation is going to be a little bit different. You're going to need to pray, seek wisdom. Um, You want them to make thorough confessions. Uh, make sure that they're ready. So you don't want just them to walk through the process of confession if they're really not repentant, right? 
I mean, I told my wife one time we were in conflict over something, and she said, "We need you need we we need to talk about this, and and we need to reconcile this." And I said, "You're right, but I'm not ready to. Uh, I'm still angry, and I don't say that pridefully. It shouldn't have been there, but uh, I know where I need to get, but I'm not there right now. And I know what to do. I mean, I'm a biblical counselor. I tell people what to do. I know what to do, but my heart's not there, and I need an hour. And I promise I'll get there in an hour." And then we'll come together. But right now, I need to be reconciled first to God and then to you. And you want to help make sure that the couple's doing that. Um, Oh, issue about divorce. Be careful about encouraging divorce. God can fix this. Um, It's interesting that the passage in Matthew 19 on divorce immediately follows what? Matthew 19 follows? Matthew 18. What's in Matthew 18? you You guys are skilled counselors. What's in Matthew 18? Reconciliation. And, you know, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? No. Seventy times seven. And then he tells a story about the man who owes 10,000 talents. Billions of dollars. Right? And immediately after that, he moves to divorce and remarriage. And I find that interesting. I think it's Christ's way of saying, Matthew's way of saying, it can all be fixed. Okay? Um, Other topics, and I think those are listed for you. We got to go to break. I'm late.